This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. To try and explain what uh, is going on inside of me or what I would be perceiving... I guess I would say, uh, you know, when you play the piano, there's a, a sustain pedal which sort of brings out the luster of the sound and makes it more full, and then there's a damper pedal. I'm not exactly sure who uses the damper pedal. I was never taught to use the damper pedal, even though I was trained in piano. I'm, I'm guessing there's some technique for using the damper pedal. To me, it's just the enemy of good sound. Uh, and if you've ever played the piano with the damper pedal on, it stinks. And I would say that that's the way I feel this morning. In here, I feel like there's a damper pedal. By the way, is this working? Am I getting, it seems like I'm going, okay, as long as you guys are hearing, that's fine. Uh, But I feel like the Spirit of God is desiring to do something in our body, and there's a damper pedal. I'm not even saying we're putting it on, okay? I'm just saying I sense that there's a damper pedal, and that's exactly what I would probably say over the last five, six seven weeks. I think I've used the term revival, and I'm just going to be blunt uh, with you guys. For whatever reason, that seems to be a tripping word. Some of you are just like, I don't like that word. I think of Todd Bentley and him kicking someone or kneeing him in the gut when I hear that word. And I would say, okay, I could understand why you would have a problem with that then. In other words, that word has been dragged through the streets and through the mud, and I think it's come out the other side looking sort of funny. To me, it's still the pure old, good, fa- good old-fashioned uh, Leonard Ravenhill, E.M. Bounds, uh, Welsh Revival-esque Keswick, uh, the old Keswick uh, type of stuff that says, Jesus enthroned in the midst of his church and all things begin to come into alignment and we are set on fire by the very fire of heaven to go into this world and turn it upside down for Jesus Christ. And I would say we need that. However, if I need to remove the word revival from it and call it something different for the sake of this body so that you guys don't trip over it, I'm all for it. We need Jesus. We need a damper pedal off of this body. We were just worshiping, and I would say the uh, contrast between what we just were engaged in and what heaven is going to be like will be a little different. Does that make sense? When you see the living God face to face, I have a hunch your worship will be a little different than it was. No one's fault. I'm saying that there is an impediment, there is a great resistance against this body. And it is not just you saying, I don't want to grow with Jesus. That's not what I'm going to put my finger on. I'm saying that the devil is concerned about what is taking place inside of us. And unless we understand the spiritual nature to the battle in which we are engaged, we will not fight it correctly. It's not just trying to whip up desire within ourselves. It's coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I need your authority, I need your strength, and I need your power to live in this body, in this body, the way we ought. I don't care what we call it. If I need to stop using the word revival so that some of you can hear what I'm saying, I am willing to do that. We need to be stirred afresh 
unto right living, unto the fullness of right living. Because then the other statement that I've actually heard is, I actually feel like I'm fine, Eric. Well, I can say the same. If you were to contrast me with the rest of Christianity, I'm on fire. And yet I am going to personally tell you the Spirit of God is so working me over that I cannot get through one day without having to confess multiple things. God is going to a deeper level inside of me, and I I recognize a greater need for greater sanctification, for greater strengthening. I measure my life against the Apostle Paul, and guess what? I'm not doing much in this earth. The power of God that is working through me does not measure up. In other words, I either accept that discrepancy, I accept the fact that my life does not have that measure of power, that measure of impact, that measure of oomph in this world, or I say, God, I refuse to accept a diminishment of your working of grace in this body, in this body. And I said to the pastors this last week, I could easily just keep pursuing this personally and leave you guys out of it. That's what I've done my entire Christian life. I want strength in my spiritual life. Even if the church flushes it down the toilet, I'm not going to. There's a summary of Eric's 28 years of Christianity. In other words, I want the real thing. I now am standing before a body, and I'm saying, I don't want to do this alone. I want to pursue Jesus Christ with every fiber of my being, but I would prefer to do it with a body. And that's easier said than done. We represent a body of conservative beliefs. We represent a body that believes in the truth. The word of God is the word of God, and Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And we rally around that truth. And yet that truth is not meant to just remain in this upper chamber of the cerebral realm. It is meant to drop into the life and change it so that this world says, whoa, boy, that's an offensive life. Why? Not because of what we believe, but because of what we live as a result of what we believe. It's how we live that truly evidences the change in our existence. Some of you have been bullied around by petty issues for far too long. I woke up this morning with such a massive heaviness. And I, it's not that I'm not used to this, okay? I, there's a reason why I have a morning routine where I step my feet onto the ground and I start chattering in my spiritual life. It's because so many mornings I'm greeted with a spiritual resistance. And I get out of bed this morning and I, I mean, you would have thought, you know, just stay back in bed, Eric. You know, all hell is going to stand against you, whatever you're planning on doing. I mean, I didn't want to come in today. As I'm sitting back there worshiping, I didn't want to preach today, and that's a rare thing. Bob, have you ever had that moment where you haven't wanted to preach? See, and I I usually am ready to preach this morning. I don't want to. And the devil is saying they don't want to hear it. That's what he's telling me. Saying, you've just gone through four straight weeks of exhorting with the depths of your being, and they don't want it. So just keep it to yourself. I've heard that all week long. Now, obviously, I'm standing here. I do not just stay in bed. I do stick my feet up on on the floor and I start moving. And that's one of the spiritual lessons I've learned in my life is don't heed that voice, keep moving. Next step, next step, next step. Truth must reign in this life, which means I know I have a job to do this morning. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what I'm supposed to speak and I'm gonna speak it. My appeal to all of us is would we 
unite together to stand against the spiritual impediment that is pressing down against us, that which is attempting to dampen the truth in our midst, but most of all, the response to the truth in our midst. Because many of you are very receptive to the truth, but it's the action that is required to follow truth that is of the utmost importance. In other words, if we do not act upon what we know, we sin. He who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now what's interesting is at whatever level, I could give so many different illustrations of how we are functioning as a body that is correct. And I could exhort us and encourage us. However, what I feel like God is doing in my life is he's pointing out the areas where I know to do something, get this, to a degree beyond the way I'm doing it. In other words, here's my out. Well, I'm doing that, God. And see, I, I somehow can slip out of that little catch where he says, Eric, I want you to clean your room, that type of a command. I go down and I move some things around and then I come back upstairs. Now, my room is still a mess, but I, I cleaned it according to my definition. And yet, if you were to ask me, what is God's definition of a clean room? I, I could tell you. And yet, so then, Eric, why isn't your room clean? Well, I, I did clean it. And there's the little, my trip up is that I have a justification that's blocking my ability to actually do what I know to do. And God seems to be touching every area in my life where I'm falling short of something I know. I'm not responsible for that which I don't know, but there are certain things I do know. And there is a level of intensity and givenness to that knowing that is very imperative for Eric Ludy to respond to. I'm going to start by doing something odd. I'm going to uh, go after this spiritual damper pedal, uh, and I'm just going to pray. And I just want you guys to join with me. Father, come before your throne of grace, clothed in the work of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I know the authority I have that is vested in that name. And with the authority of that name, I wield it like a sword against the spiritual powers that are seeking to hinder what is taking place in this body. I bind those spiritual powers in the authority of Jesus' name, and I declare that they are not welcome here. Anything that has been given an assignment against the members of this body, the visitors in this room, any of the leadership over this body, I bind it in the authority of Jesus' name, and I say, get out we do not welcome you here. We are not going to be hospitable to any spiritual power that would seek to dampen and hinder and discourage. Lord Jesus, we celebrate the truth of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven. May the joy of the Lord flow freely in our midst. May the peace that passes all understanding flow freely in our midst. May the love of God Almighty flow freely in our midst and may this be a taste of heaven on earth the way you intended it to be. The church is not meant for oppression. It is meant to change all that oppresses, to kick it out so that we can go upward in our soul, in our thoughts, in our lives. Turn our gaze heavenward, Lord, that we would see you high and lifted up. We would see your train filling the temple. Lord Jesus, may we see your holy, holy, holiness today. May we be silenced as Isaiah was with a woe. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. May we see, Lord Jesus, that you are not like us and we are not like you.
The fact that you have condescended to love us is a miracle of miracles. It is a glory of glories. But Lord Jesus, may we start with what makes the gospel shine, and that is that we are not like you. We are sinful in and of ourselves. And Lord Jesus, where any dingy dirtiness remains in our soul, I pray that you would cleanse it, that you would wash it, and that you would sanctify us and change our behavior to truly reveal you. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness, which is so constant in Christ. You are so good and so patient and gentle with us. But Lord, you love us too much to leave us the way we are. So take us onward and upward, Lord Jesus. Amen. The More Right. Awkward title. The Desperate Need for Spiritual Recalibration. Now, the last four weeks before this, I had given uh, four, I don't remember how I said it, secrets or keys to change in the world. And so you'd expect the fifth one here. Uh, This was a really hard sermon for me to prepare. Everything about uh, what I'm going through personally makes it very difficult to know how to translate this to a body. I have certain things that God is teaching me on the personal level that aren't making it in this. Who knows? Maybe they'll slip out. But I am struggling with, God, I want to walk our body through this to completion and not allow a miscarriage in the process. Not to allow something that you're forming to be incomplete and to die prematurely. I desire to see this pressed all the way to its conclusion. That's easier said than done. Uh, And I'm guessing that every woman that's ever gone through labor... Uh, knows that there are certain moments when she wishes she could just be done uh, and just have it over, but there is a need to get that life out. And that's sort of where I'm at. And so I continue down a narrow road. By the way, if you've ever uh, studied the word narrow in Scripture, it means a way of difficulty, a way of compression. It's not just thinness. It's a way of difficulty. And uh, these types of sermons are difficult. They're difficult to prepare, and I'm not sure what it's like to hear them. I I love hearing these types of sermons, but I'm of a very unique sort of variety uh, in my Christian life. I'm the type of guy that likes to read Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrandt. You know, it's like, what's wrong with Eric? Well, I don't know. He wrote it for someone. I'm guessing maybe he was thinking of me when he did. I love that sort of thing. I love things that make me feel uncomfortable. Now you can sort of understand why. I just presume you all do too. So if we have a desperate need for spiritual recalibration, we better discuss what recalibration means. Uh, From the Cambridge English Dictionary, to make small changes to an instrument so that it measures accurately. So, uh, you know, I I grew up with the, the monitor thing. When you're doing design, you have to have your colors right, so you have to calibrate your monitor to the actual colors. Sometimes we get off and we're calibrated to the wrong thing. And what's coming out of our machine or our instrument looks good to us, but according to the actual standard, it's not meeting the requirements. And that is where the spiritual recalibration comes in. It's a fresh sight of the fact that God's ways are actually not ours. Sometimes we've landed in territory of justification that is short of where God desires us to be. So spiritual recalibration, to allow the Holy Spirit to make small changes to our thinking, living, and behaving so that we reveal the kingdom of heaven correctly. It's a fairly fairly mature body here, and 
for some reason, we don't have a lot of new believers. We have some, but not a lot. And that's part of my message uh, today. Uh, we're, we're a more mature body. In other words, we've been groomed, we've been discipled. The high percentage of you in here have been actually formally discipled in your Christian life. Highly unusual in a church. And so that could be bragging points for us. At the same time, uh, it could mean we need a little spiritual recalibration. Because sometimes when you know as much as we know, you can feel like you're doing something in your life because you know to do something. You ever had that weird dynamic take place in your life? Uh, You know that we're supposed to uh, visit the orphans in their need. You know that. How many of you do it? You follow me? However, you know it, and you know it so well. In fact, you've talked about it. You've been to his little feet concerts, and you've visited them, you know, in, in their need. In other words, we have a discrepancy between what we know and what we do. Is that all right? Well, since everyone around you has the same discrepancy, I guess it doesn't matter. Or does it? You see, when I use the term revival, it skews things. Some of you just get wrong ideas of what that means. However, if I use spiritual recalibration, in other words, where we are being centered afresh to something other than our own justifications and each other. It's like, well, Eric Ludi does that. Does that mean it's right for you? Eric Ludi doesn't do that. Does that mean you shouldn't do that? In other words, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, I should follow Christ and you should follow me as I follow Christ, but what if I'm not following him perfectly? Don't use man to calibrate. In other words, we're supposed to calibrate towards something and to something that is outside of man. That something is Jesus Christ. I'm going to call him the more right. Okay, we know him as the righteous one. He is the one that is more right than we are. Our righteousness is not God's. In other words, the things that we think are valuable, the things that we think are right, actually are not that which is right. Jesus comes to this earth and shows us that which is more right. He shows us that which is right in heaven. And then he says, I need you to calibrate your life around that. And so sanctification, sorry to use a big word, which means the process of being made holy or being made like him or being made more right. In other words, you can fit into this world and be right with this world. Nowadays, that wouldn't say a lot for you. If you're right or politically correct or socially correct with this world, you're actually more and more, with every step forward in that direction, more and more wrong in heaven. And so we as Christians can't try and find our rightness from being in agreement with men. And men pat us on the back and say, I think that's fine. It really doesn't matter what men think. What does God think? And so spiritual recalibration means we need to be recalibrated and remove our justifications and the haziness that surrounds our decision-making and our lifestyle, which I would set before you means to allow the Spirit of God to invade every crevice of our existence and to test every single point of reasoning until he's done, which we all know may not happen this side of heaven. And that's sanctification. But there needs to be a receptivity to that. Many of us have a receptivity to moral sanctification. In other words, yeah, I don't want to lust anymore, so God sanctify me. But how about the way we handle our finances? How about the way we handle our sleeping habits? How about the way we handle our tongue? 
Are we willing to allow the Spirit of God to sanctify us, to correct our patterns so that it's more right how we talk? It's more right how we live with our family, how we speak to our children, how we discipline them. It's more right because we're allowing Jesus to correct these subtle things instead of like, oh, I've been doing that for 20 years and God never struck me down dead with lightning. I guess I'm fine. Yeah, you're right, maybe. And even to the person down the road, you look a lot more bright and shiny. But it's not the righteousness of God. You see, God desires his church to be clothed in that righteousness so that we would be brought near to the throne room of grace where we may receive the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can enter into these bodies and change us to be like him. Now, that doesn't happen overnight. And some of you have been frustrated with the fact that you radically gave your life to Jesus and yet you still have some impediments. But you've accepted those impediments You have not allowed the Holy Spirit to jealously pursue that sanctification. So you've called it a a personality glitch. You've called it a, uh, you know, a taste issue. Uh, You've called it, you know, a doctrinal disagreement. You've come up with your escape valve so that you wouldn't allow the Spirit of God to keep pressing on that. Where you say, God, I refuse to allow this to remain in my life. You do whatever you must to change it. Luke 10. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary. It's odd. I don't know how many of you have ever met a family, you know, where they have two sons. One's named Bill and the other one's named Billy. But that's sort of like this. Mary and Martha are like the same name. One's like the Aramaic and one's like the Hebrew version of uh, the name for Miriam in the Old Testament. And so it's like both come from the root Mar, and so they both mean rebellious. So, I mean, it's a great picture of the church of Jesus Christ, don't you think? Because that's how we all start. Jesus was born in a Mary. And in a sense, this is a great picture of it. But there's always twos. I've always said there's two churches, Uh, there's sheep and goats, there's wheat and tares, there's always twos, and so Jesus comes into a home, and there's two, and there's one that does that which is right, and there's one that does that which is more right. So Jesus is welcomed in, and there's, uh, she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word, but Martha was distracted with much serving, And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Some translations say better part. She has chosen something that was better, that was good, that was godly. You see, if any of us, especially in the American culture, now most of us know this story, therefore we're going to side with Mary. I mean, we're not dumb. We, we know how the story goes, so we're going to say, oh, Mary, I'm with Mary. Yeah, mentally we're with Mary. Practically, we're with Martha. God convicted me about this just over a month ago, and I still, I mean, every day I have to remember this. I have a tendency to serve with all the right intentions and to be busy 
toiling for the kingdom of heaven and to look at someone who would just sit at the feet of Jesus and listen. I mean, I mean, there's, there's some practical things that need to be done here. It isn't that the practical stuff doesn't need to be done. There's two kinds of working. And this is what God's been teaching me. And he's been convicting me at a deep level in regards to how to work as Mary. In other words, God's not against hard labor. He's not. However, there's two kinds of hard labor. There's one that is based in anxiety, and it works because if it doesn't work, life's going to crumble. And then the other type of work rests in the confidence that God's in control. And it keeps its gaze fixed on the word of God, on Jesus Christ. Still works. And it's the better way or the more right version. So recalibrating Martha, that's what Jesus is doing. Is it right to prepare the house to set the table to serve Jesus well? Yes, it is. There's nothing wrong with what she's doing. In fact, in her mind, she's saying this is right. However, it is more right to do what Mary did. And so what we can see in this story without trying to break down the story itself is to see that there are two ways of handling something and one that at first, first blush, we actually would agree with Martha. I mean, most of us, if we were to think about it, we'd go, yeah, Martha's at, if we didn't know the story and I could just take it and set it before you and I'd say, which one do you think is right? We have one lady that is busy serving, setting the table, doing all the stuff, and this other lady is like sitting on the floor in the other room. And the, and the, the one that's serving is like, uh, excuse me, but could you help uh, set the table for Jesus? Jesus is coming. The king of all kings is coming over for dinner. I think, you know, we should set the table and make some good food. Every single one of us would side with Martha, yet God is going out of his way to see there's something beyond this picture that you need to recognize. There is a more right, there is something that is beyond that we miss. Recalibrating Eric. That's always fun. I have served as Martha and many times in doing that which was right have spurned the more right. I, I don't like saying that. I really don't. Uh, I don't like having to admit, because I always want to clarify and say, hey, but I have done the more right a lot. See, I want to throw stuff out there, but just to have it linger on the, on the screen is, is good for me. It's true. There are things I've known to do but have not done them. Now, what's funny is if you had asked me, is there anything right now, Eric, that you know to do that you're not doing? No. See, what I think when you say that is bigger things. Like, is there someone that you're supposed to go and apologize to that you haven't? However, there are smaller things, more granular level things, that there, there needs to be more emphasis and more givenness and more time devoted to it. So there are things I've known to do but have not done them, and today I wish to call that precisely what it is, sin. I have been a diligent soul teacher, not a diligent soul winner. Before I had six kids, my life was oriented towards outward givenness a lot more. My life has so dramatically been impacted by what I've done over the past, oh, I don't know what it's been, eight, nine years with getting the campus and all these things. And I love, this is what I could tell God, I love to go out and share the gospel. I do. However, I am so busy teaching people that already know the gospel how to grow up in their faith that, look at my choice of words. I've been a diligent soul teacher. 
No one could argue that. I have worked on curriculums. I have exhaustively gone through with thousands of people in their soul and walking them through unto maturity. Can't blame uh, me for failing on that end. I feel pretty good. But I've not been a diligent soul winner. Have I been a soul winner? Yes, and that's where my hiccup is. If someone were to say, you're not a soul winner, I've led a lot of people to Christ. Even since I've been doing Ellerslie, a lot of people. But I haven't been diligent the same way I have been with soul teaching. I have not been diligent with soul winning. Does that matter? Because many of you haven't been either. So does it matter that Eric hasn't been diligent? You see, the word diligent, when God sort of stuck it into the sentence, is what gave me some problems. It's like, wow, I mean, I have so much that I'm already doing. I can't be diligent in that. So here's where the message comes down to. I'm going to use this as an illustration, which is basically what God's working me over on. And that's the issue of soul winning. But I'm going to keep going with my Eric recalibration. I have forsaken countless people on this earth being distracted with that which is right while excusing myself from that which is more right. In other words, what I'm doing is very right. And as a result, I have an excuse to not do that which is more right. I have hindered the work of the Holy Spirit in using me to speak to the lost by so dutifully speaking to the already saved. In other words, I'm so diligent, so given, such a hard worker in doing what I'm doing, that I've hindered the work of the Holy Spirit in taking me beyond that. I have chosen, though it has been unwitting at times, the easier path of right instead of the more dangerous path of more right. I need, this is Eric speaking, a fresh impetus, a fresh boldness, a fresh vision, a fresh conviction of the exceeding sinfulness of this distraction and this justification of the right. Recalibrating our church, sorry to throw you guys under the bus too, but it, it'll be pain, painless, I'm, I'm sure. We consistently, as a church, do that which is right, but I'm not certain we are consistently doing that which is more right. And that's my burden. I've used the term revival in the past. However, I'm not going to use that word to describe what we need. I just want us to get centered around the more right. I want us to be willing to not just prepare the house for Jesus and do it just right, but to allow the Spirit of God to come in and address the points within us where we know to do, but we are not doing. Where we have our slick rationalizations already in place to hinder us from actually doing the work of the church of Jesus Christ in this world. So I'm going to give an example today, and this is the one that God is dealing with me on. So I'm going to drag you through it, even though this is probably more for me than maybe it is for you. However, I've seen that when God is working me over on something, he oftentimes wants to do the same for you. We have been asked by our Lord to win souls. So you've noticed that even in my Eric's recalibration, is that I know that. And so if you were up here preaching and, and you said something like, Eric, did you know that God wants us to win souls for him? I'd say, amen, brother. Amen. Hallelujah. I would agree. You're not going to get any argument. Doctrinally, I'm in agreement. Even practically, I make myself available to win souls. However, if you study the New Testament in regards to how the church operated, compared to how Eric operates in regards to winning souls, you're going to see a discrepancy. 
They made it their priority. For me, it's a bonus feature in my already busy life. You see a difference there? So here's a series of questions. The Lord has asked us to win souls, so are we doing it? Uh, I don't know if I need to remind us of the praying and confessing church sermons that I gave three years ago, whatever that was, two and a half, and how much resistance this church had when we stood up to share. And the amount of fruit that we gained out of that was so paltry as to be construed as tremendously discouraging to us as a body. Though we had a tremendous energy and readiness to go into this world and bring forth a harvest, we were met with a spiritual resistance and damper pedal that I think shocked every one of us in here. And so as a result, I would almost say we are less zealous for winning souls than we were two and a half years ago because of the impediments we faced. Okay, just a hunch. It's just, I'm speculating. However, are we doing it? I'm not saying we're not. I'm just saying, are we doing it? Because if you asked me, are you winning souls? Like, yeah. I mean, every day, I'm, people know I'm a Christian. Everywhere I go, I get into spiritual conversations. But there's a difference, and I know it. I know the difference between when I go out to win a soul and when I go out to do my work and then I happen to run into someone, and because I'm a Christian, I'm always looking to get into a spiritual conversation. There's a difference between it, and I've been in both modes. And what I'm saying is, I know to be in the mode that goes after souls. I know it. And yet, I'm in a default, easier version of it right now. And the question is, when God puts his finger on it, do I want to justify that, or do I want him to get his way in me? Even though I'm not sure what that means. Are we doing it as if we had received a personal commission from the King of Kings and handed all the resource and all the equipment to pull off this work? Imagine that God himself gets up in front of this church and says, I am asking each and every one of you personally to go out and make it your business to compel the lost to come into the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to give you all the resource. I'm going to give you all the materials you will need. You'll have my very life within you, my very boldness and courage to do it. But I need you to do it. Do we do it with that as our motivation? And I would say, I'm not. I'm not living as if that's the reality. Are we doing it as if it were our highest priority? Are we doing it with excellence, with givenness, with cheer, with energy? Because some of us, when you hear me say that, you immediately feel law come upon your soul. And it's heavy. Well, that's because... You would be doing it if you did it out of a sense of duty as opposed to seeing the Lord high and lifted up and his train filling the temple, which is what last week's message was. Without the vision, you don't have the woe, the low, and the go. If you missed last week, that's very confusing. You see, if we don't have the vision of the high and lifted up one, the one whose train is supposed to fill this temple completely, 
then we will not see our sinfulness. And if we don't see our sinfulness, we don't, won't see the amazing power and condescension, mercy and love of the cross. And if you don't see that, you won't say, God, send me. I must share this vision with the world. There is no arm twisting for a Christian. It's supposed to be our delight. So if it isn't, is there something wrong with us? And that's what I feel God is trying to put his finger on. And whether we call it revival or not, I want that touched inside of this church. And I feel that if it is touched, what would happen would be what I would call revival. I don't care if you do. I want to see God get his due out of our lives. I don't want to see anything stand in the way. Are we doing it even poorly? Because the reason some of us don't do it is because we don't feel polished. I, I know. This is, how, this is how many of us work, especially in this country. It's like, I don't want to, like, shoo people away from God because I'm going out there like, ah, hi. Have you ever had that? They, I mean, the, it's painful. Those moments where you're like, hi. Uh, and you're like, how do I get to the gospel? And you, instead of just opening it up with some question that's more normal, you come straight in and say, do you know Jesus? And then they don't even take your hand, and there's like five people standing around. You're like... Uh, yeah, and they're like, yeah, uh, just some guy down the road from your church just talked with me, okay? I'm not interested. Okay, all right, great. Those moments are what cause us to not do anything. Would, are we doing it even if it stinks, is my point. I don't care. Our job isn't to be the amazing converters of souls. Our job is to say, my king has called me to do something. The best I know is to obey and trust that he will equip me to do the work. Every single one of you that has become good at anything in your life, how did you become good at it? By exercising, by doing it. There is nothing in this life, the way God created us is that he created us to learn that balance, to learn that skill, to learn that coordination by practice. This is a hard area to practice. I understand that. Are we even doing it poorly? Or are we even willing to do it? I don't know how deep God needs to touch with you because some of you might, yeah, I'm not even willing, no way. I had so many layers of justification in the years past. God's worked me over on this topic because I am not, by personality, I am a people pleaser. I like people to like me, I'm a rule follower. So, hey, well, that's not, you're not supposed to do that. Socially, that's inappropriate. And so I, I've had so many barriers in the natural sense to me being an evangelist. I don't mind speaking and even offending. And I don't mind sharing now. I mean, I, I've worked through a lot of this. I don't mind sharing with someone. However, I can very easily pull back if I lose the rhythm in my soul. Have you ever had it where you get in shape and you're feeling like, you know, I'm in really good shape. And then you take a couple weeks off and then you just sort of lose that oomph. Uh-huh. Same is true with sharing the gospel. You see, this is supposed to be our life. But when it's not our life, we all feel sort of awkward. Sort of like, uh, yeah, okay, guys, we're going to run a marathon right now. All right, did you bring your running shoes? No, you all have dress shoes on. Did you bring your running shorts? No, you all have slacks on. Well, you're not prepared for the marathon. That's the way we are with sharing the gospel. We're wearing the wrong shoes and the wrong clothes, and we're out of shape. And then suddenly we're supposed to run a marathon? You see, we're not training. 
We're not exercising in the most basic sense that which is more right in our life. And as a result, we're out of shape and unfit. Looking around, well, no one else is fit. No one else is in shape for that. Burp, scratch. And so we're losing our edge as Christians. Our knack for finding an excuse. This scripture uh, just sort of says it. Luke 14. So this is Jesus' answer. Uh, and he gives an illustration. So it's like a parable, but I'll just read it, and you'll, you'll sort of catch uh, the drift. A certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servants at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that the servant came and reported these things to his master. So the master has come and he has made it very clear. Tell them to come. We know what to do. This is, that's my contextual link with that. We know what to do. Jesus says, come. To us, he said, Go. It says, go into all the world and preach this gospel. He has commanded us to win souls. I'm going to go through the scriptures of that in just a second. He has given us something that we all know clearly. I don't think there's any dickering amongst us. We know what we're supposed to be doing here. We're not supposed to hide a light under a bushel. We're supposed to share that light with the world. But we have excuses, different reasons why. And I could give you my reasons, but they're my reasons. In other words, the different things that hinder or cause me to have a blockage from being able to fully come to that banquet. It's like, well, God, I'm with you. Uh, Can I send an RSVP uh, maybe for your next banquet? Uh, You know, because I really want to come. It's just I have this stuff that's going on. You know what? I'm serving you. I'm doing all this stuff for you. And yet he makes something clear. Eric, I'm asking you to do this. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, master, it is done as you commanded and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Now the context for this is going to have more to do with the Jews being invited and, and saying, hey, look, we're not interested, Jesus. However, it's the same kingdom pattern. We as Christians oftentimes can cluck our tongues at the Jews and say, you had the word of God, yet you rejected the clear word when it came? The word of God is standing before you, and yet you crucify him? How could you do that? They had all their legalities, all their loopholes in place for why they could call him a blasphemy, why they could punish him to death, why they could stand by and mock and ridicule him. They felt they were doing that which was right, and yet they were not doing that which was more right. I do not want us to cluck our tongues at the Jews who had the word of God, who had the promises of scripture, who actually had the Messiah and crucified him, I do not want us to make any mistake, even remotely similar to that, where we take for granted that which we've been given. And we cluck our tongues at 
the extreme versions of living Christianity. Well, that's just too extreme. Anyone that ever gets that serious about Christianity, we have to be careful about them. There is no scripture in the Bible that is ever going to moderate and put a damper pedal on your givenness to Jesus Christ. I know if you eat too much sugar, you'll die. I know if you eat too much salt, you'll die. Technically, I think if you drink too much water, you die. I mean, weird stuff like that. You cannot have too much of Jesus Christ. There is no rule in the Bible that says beware of having too much of him. In other words, there's an open highway. There is no hand slap when he says, come, and we come after him. We will receive all that we go after. There is a treasure trove, an entire, like a treasure chest, but it's like a walk-in warehouse known as the throne room of grace. He says, boldly come, enter. You have access to all of this, all the equipment, all the weaponry that you will need to accomplish your job on this earth, and yet most of us are not coming in and taking that which we need to do this job down here. Instead, we excuse ourselves. He has made a banquet for us to give us everything that we could possibly need to live this life on this earth correctly. John Wesley, this is his 12 rules that he gave to all of his pastors in the Methodist denomination. When I first heard this, it caught me as extreme. I've pondered it a lot. This is the second sermon I've stuck it in, so that says something. You have nothing to do but to save souls. What? If you're talking to a pastor, you need to realize, John, uh, can I call you John? You need to realize, John, that there's a lot more to being a pastor than saving souls. You have nothing to do but to save souls. Therefore, spend and be spent in this work. It is not your business to preach so many times, but to save as many souls as you can. To bring as many sinners as you possibly can to repentance and with all your power to build them up in that holiness without which they cannot see the Lord. He doesn't exclude discipleship. You'll notice that that's the second part of that. It's like, bring them in and build them up. However, it's not just build them up. It's bring them in, capital B. Build them up, small b. In other words, of course you're going to build them up, but bring them in. Bring them in. Bring them in. Where are we putting the capital? I can tell you where I've put my capital. I've put it on the build them up. Is it wrong? No. There's something that's more right. I'm just giving you what God is dealing with me on. It's out of my comfort zone. It's not what I'm wired for. I'm built for something and it's so obvious to me. And it's not going into the highways and hedges. I don't, God, that doesn't fit my personality profile. I'm I'm doing what I should do. I have my reasons. So did Martha. Discipleship matters. It does. In other words, what I do is not to be diminished. It's extremely important to build up the church of Jesus Christ. But is there something that must be considered even more right? Oswald J. Smith, pastor from Canada, uh, has multiple books on this subject and quite profound. There are men who feel they have special talents for the edification of believers And so they give themselves entirely to building up Christians in the faith. This was where I was sidetracked. I felt that I had special gifts for teaching and speaking to young Christians on the deeper life. 
And so I prepared a number of addresses with the idea of devoting my time to this work until God mercifully opened my eyes and showed me how far I was astray. There is nothing that will deepen Christian experience, edify believers, and build them up in the faith so rapidly as thoroughly and thoroughly as seeing souls saved. Deep Holy Spirit meetings where the power of God is working mightily in the conviction and salvation of sinners will do more for Christians than the teaching of years without it. Such was the experience of David Brainerd in writing of the Indians among whom he labored. He says, many of these people have gained more doctrinal knowledge of divine truth since I have first visited them in June last than could have been instilled into their minds by the most diligent use of proper and instructive means for whole years together without such a divine influence. The more right. We could call it righteousness. I also would like to liken it to the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He's also our righteousness. He is the righteousness of God. That which is truly God's thinking, God's way of living, how would God do it? The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. So what is the wisdom of God? It sounds strange, but to win souls. That's the wisdom of God. He who wins souls is wise. So, are you wise? Is this the priority of your life? Because that's the wise priority. If you were building your life according to wisdom, what would your life be built around? Winning souls. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So the wise seem to have an attribute to them, and that is that they turn many to righteousness. Our own sense of right versus God's sense of right. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Your sense of right is not my sense of right, says the Lord. In other words, we have a way that we think is right when in actuality God says, that's not right though. Are you interested in my thoughts? Are you interested in my ways? There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We all know that. And see, we're Christians. We're already in the way of Jesus Christ. However, this is true at every level of our development, that there's a way that you instinctively think to go. In a time of plague, it is instinctive to hide, to get your family as far away from the plague as possible. So many Christians throughout history have dealt with this exact dilemma because they could be of service to those that are dying from the plague. But to actually serve means to potentially expose themselves to the plague. What does a Christian do? What is wisdom? Well, there's natural human wisdom which says, get away. Any of you that have any medical background would say, yeah, that's wisdom. Stay far away from the plague. But what does God say? He actually sends us forth. What do you think missions is? Missions isn't going to healthy uh, communities that are marked by good uh, sanitation systems. It is going to where the unhealthy are. The lost, the dying, it's disease-ridden. That's where a missionary goes. That's not wise, is it? Well, it depends on whose wisdom we're talking about. Whose right are we referring to? Our righteousness. We are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. 
We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. When we know this, when we know this as the framework of our natural man, we should not lean on our natural man to lead us. We should not lean on other natural men to give us insight in how to live. Self-help books only have merit when they are based in the scripture and the wisdom of God. If they are not based in the wisdom of God, then why in the world would you listen to some other man in his natural state with his natural wisdom giving you insight into how you should live your life in this body on this earth? For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So them being ignorant of God's more right or his way that is more correct, more right, seeking to establish their own rightness, hey, my way is perfectly fine, have not submitted to the more right of God. This is where I don't want us to be. In other words, I'm not saying we are there. I'm saying there's a damper pedal. There's something that's hindering us. And these are the niggling things that erode and eat away the cheese, the little mice that eat it away. We need to make sure that we kick out these subtle justifications so that we can hear, see clearly in our spiritual life. God's righteousness. Jesus Christ, the righteous. God reveals his righteousness to us in and through a person. You could say the Ten Commandments are his perfect righteousness. However, the, the Ten Commandments are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So therefore, Jesus Christ is a more perfect enunciation of the righteousness of God than the Ten Commandments. The man Jesus is the righteousness of God. And so therefore, what he says, what he does, is the life. This is the pattern. This is what it's about. This is the more right. This is the right way to live. This is the way that God intended one in an Adam body to live on this earth. Jesus, you can say, well, he was God. And you'd be correct. However, when we believe in Jesus, we are clothed in him. We enter into him and he brings us into the throne of grace. And though we have these old dying bodies, he gives us his very Holy Spirit, which is God Almighty, and he sets it in this body. So therefore, though we are not God, we have the enabling power of God to live in this life the way that is more right. What does the more right one intend to do with us? So since we've established that Jesus is more right, what does he intend to do with us? When the one who is more right, who truly exemplifies that which is right in heaven's eyes, that which is more correct than anything down here, when he tells us to do something, how seriously should we take it? Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is literally how he begins his rabbinical ministry. He's calling his first disciples unto himself. And his entire premise point is that he is going to make them something. What is he going to make his disciples? Exactly what he is, a fisher of men. That's a pretty profound statement. In other words, you look at the very framework of Jesus' model of ministry. Does he disciple? Yes, he does. For what purpose? To do the same thing that he is already doing. He is fishing for men. 
And he's going to train them and make them fishers of men. 1 Corinthians 9, look at Paul's thinking. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all. Why, Paul? Why did you do that? That I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the laws, under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without laws, without law, not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those that are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I, became, I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Simple point is evidenced in Paul. He's willing to do whatever it takes to win souls. And I guess the question that comes back to me from that scripture is, Eric, are you? Do I have a justification waiting? Do I have an excuse ready? Because I have them, guys. I have a whole list of really good excuses. I'm even thinking about them as I'm reading the scripture. It's like, my God, how's that going to work with this? I just want to take his word as it is and say, Forget Eric's excuses over here. Yes, Lord. Now help me do it. How do I do it with all the stuff that I have, all the responsibilities I have? How do I recalibrate around your word instead of around my slick justifications? For what is our hope, says Paul, or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? What is the great crown of a Christian? What is the great hope or joy that they have? It's to see others in Christ that is coming. It's to win them. It's to win others. That's, that's our delight. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What if you knew that you could save a sinner from death and cover a multitude of sins. I know you can't. It's the blood of Jesus that does it. However, what if you knew it was possible to save someone for eternity because of your willingness to say yes? Would it matter to you? Would it have weight? Would it, be a, would it have gravity? Does it matter? Don't you sometimes feel like we can see the scriptures and they don't quite sink in? That, that's what I mean by saying, what do we need as a body to have this finally just go, I get it. My life has to change, people. I cannot keep living the way I am. And someone next to you could say, you're living just fine. You're an inspiration to me, dear brother. And you could say, well, I've been an inspiration to right living, but there is a more right way to live. I want us to go after the more right at the Lake of Harps, put that in for Harper. Do you know that there's a, there's a lake in the New Testament called the Lake of Harps? It's called Gennesaret, but that means harps. Isn't that cool? Luke 5. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the Lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, which we know as the Apostle Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. So Jesus is standing on the shore. 
and he sees two boats there. The fishermen are done fishing. They've been fishing all night, we're about to find out, and they're washing out their nets. And so he goes, hey, I want to use one of these boats. And so they set out, and so Peter is in the boat. The other fishermen actually go with them in the boat. So they're listening to him talk on the water. And so he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. I always picture him standing in the boat, but he sat down. So if, I, I must have seen a little picture of a drawing of it when I was young. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So I'm going to liken this. This is another scripture that God has been working me over with. Peter, James, John, the other fishermen have been fishing all night. They've tried. They've tried. I've given a lot to this culture in which we live. I've been in ministry for a long time. And the world is worse off than when I started. I feel like I've toiled all night long and I'm not getting much in my net. So I'm washing it out and Jesus says, could I use your boat? Sure, sure. So we go out and he gives me a fresh message. And I hear him and he says, now I want you to go out to the deep again. God, (laughs) I've tried that. I've tried that, I've fished all night. I've given my all. And I don't know that this world is interested in changing. Does there come a point when you give up? Does there come a point when you stop shouting and doing your thing and you just sort of coil up into the fetal position and say, I've, I've done it? Or do you allow Jesus to get into your boat afresh and say, let's head out to the deep? Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, We have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Isn't that interesting how often it is that when we see who he really is, this is not just a teacher. This is God. Only God has command over the winds and rains. Only God has command over the fish of the sea. That's the sign of Jonah, by the way. It's one of them. I know it was three days in the belly of the earth and then risen, but you have to realize, Jonah, what was the signal to the Ninevites? Yeah, three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, sure, but he conquered the fish. And that's exactly what they worshipped in the town of Nineveh, in the city of Nineveh. It was the house of the fish. And guess who destroyed the fish? Guess who literally triumphed over the grave? That prophet. And what is Jesus showing to the son of Jonah? He's showing him that he commands the fish. You see, we need to see that afresh. I know it looks like this world is going to hell in a handbasket. I know that it seems that it's getting worse and worse with every passing day. But do you know who your God is? And do you know that he rules the heavens and the earth? And do you know that he directs the hearts of kings like it was a water course? Do you not know who you serve? 
You, you and I, we all need a fresh vision of the greatness and the power and the authority of our God. Set out into the deep and set down your nets for a catch. God, we've tried that. Two and a half years ago, this church gave everything we had to win lost souls. And we came up with empty nets. Well, I'm telling you, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go out, set into the deep again, and drop your nets. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. For now on, from now on, you will catch men. Isn't that just an incredible quote? From now on, you will catch men. He had an entire career as a fisherman. And this is the greatest catch he's ever had. If there was ever a time to keep being a fisherman, I'd say it's right about now. Just have Jesus stand on the shoreline every day and just sort of tell him what to do. That's not how God works. You have to be willing to give up that which you have succeeded at in this world, that which is right for you to do in this world's eyes in order to do the work of catching men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. They make it sound so easy in Scripture, don't they? Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. I'd say that's a pretty good quote for our church. I think... We do care about lost souls here, even though it wanes, it goes up and down, and sometimes we forget. I think we care about the persecuted church. I think we care about orphans and widows. But I feel like we err on the side of a more doctrinal care than we do in allowing the heart of God to truly burst forth through us unto an agony, unto a point where we cannot do nothing. We must act. That agony, that anguish is something that only comes from recalibration. Because if we're missing it, it's not because God doesn't want to give it. It's because we have impediments and blockages, things that are hindering the flow of grace into our life. And so if we say, God, show me the small corrections. Make this instrument correct again. He will. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. The commission is clear. It is more right to obey him than to make sacrifices of ministry, service, and pursue moral excellence. I'm going to give you a parallel from the New Testament and the Old Testament. We have the Old Testament and we have a first and a second. We have the first king of Israel and the second, Saul, David. Saul was rejected because he disobeyed the word of the Lord. Yet what he did, if we were to just analyze it, outside of our knowledge of the story, we would say our life probably resembles Saul far more closely than we would feel comfortable. You see, God gives Saul a very clear commission. I'm going to read it for you. And it starts with the word, go. Now the Lord sent you on a mission and says, this is the, the prophet Samuel talking to Saul. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, go 
and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Listen to his response. But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. He, he was right in his own eyes. But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. See, he's in there. Do you hear that groaning? I have him gagged and tied. Hear that? I, I brought back the king of them. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But uh, the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen. I mean, they were the best things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. This is all for a sacrifice. This is to be pleasing to you. This is like a form of worship to you, God. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. So I'm going to do a paraphrased version for us as a church. Might be a little uncomfortable. Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And Eric and the church at Ellerslie said to the Holy Spirit, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. So the Holy Spirit said, as the Lord has great a delight in your dutiful devotions and your moral excellence as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to do the thing I consider highest and best than the fat of rams. So did he really say go? Good question. Good doctrinal question for us. Did he say go? And does that go apply to us? I mean, he was talking to his apostles. Now, I, hopefully I've explained this to you in the past, but just as a refresher, you can excuse yourself from all scripture if you tried by saying, oh, that was written to a different people group. I mean, Paul was writing to the church at Thessalonica. I mean, that has nothing to do with me. You could look at all the Old Testaments and all the book of Isaiah. It was written to the, to the, the kingdom of Israel. And uh, I mean, that has nothing to do with me. However, you have the logos, it's the word of God, it's the general word that is made available to all, common, just as Jesus is. He's the word of God, not just made available to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. It's the common word of God. And then we have a word called rema, which seems to indicate the idea of that common word brought personal and made personal to you. So when Jesus is speaking to Peter in the boat and says, set out to the deep. He says, according to your rema. According, it's the word of God speaking, but it's made personal to Peter for his very specific situation. When you study the Bible, God takes the logos, the general text, and makes it yours. That's how the Holy Spirit works. He is going to bring it to you so that it lives. He's never going to take it and use it incorrectly so that it doesn't match with his meaning. He never violates that logos. However, he takes from that logos, that word of God, Jesus Christ, and applies it to you as an individual. If you do not have that application, your life will not work. What do you think the cross is? The cross is the Holy Spirit coming to you and saying, that was for you. If you never have that logos, the word of God who died for you, brought to you personally, you have nothing. But when it does come to you, you know it. The Spirit of God works you over and you know that he died for you you know that he is who he says he is and now he says repent and believe 
And at every juncture in our Christian journey, he takes that word and he applies it to us. You know I was talking to you. This is for all that would believe. All that have entered into Christ have access to that inheritance of the word of truth. It is eternal. It is unchanging. And though it was written in a very specific time period to a very specific group of people, and that purpose still stands, God can still take those words and bring them all the way through history to us in our current situation in Windsor, Colorado, and make them live in us. So did he really say go? I think he did. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is such a massive command that I can understand why we escape from it. Because that is so obvious what the church is founded upon. It's not founded upon just a building. It's founded upon a purpose. And that purpose is to take the vision and to share it the world over. And it's so daunting and grand that if you're looking into your own pockets and your own strength and your own natural ability, you'll shrink from that. But if you recognize that this is what we do in every circumstance and every day, there are a lot of creatures that have not heard it. It is shocking how many people right down the road here in Windsor have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may think they know what it is, but they've never heard it. The lack of clarity to the word of God today, even in the church, is at all-time lows, let alone those outside of the church. You could have grown up in the church and have never heard the gospel. Figure that one out. Doesn't even make sense, does it? And yet, there is a passion in the heart of God that we would move into action to win souls. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Then the master said to the servant, this was in Jesus' story, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. That word is so strong, compel them to come in. It is not just a light you know, throwing out of words. Hey, you know, I just want you to know that there's a truth out here and I'm saying it right now, but it's a pleading. It's a yearning. It's an inability to sleep at night because there is a soul hanging in the balance and you are moved to action because of that. So Jesus said to them again, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. What was Jesus? Jesus was one who sought out that which was lost. He went to seek and save that which was lost. It's profound. When we recognize that he is the picture of that which is more right, he is the picture for all of us to see. He is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of man, eh, filthy rags. The righteousness of God, that's right. That's the way it should be. In the same way Jesus was sent by the Father. To do what? Well, to win us. I also send you. I am intimidated personally by this message 
because I know it demands response on my part. And to be honest, I have a lot of question marks dancing around in my head, and yet I'm still preaching it. I still chose to send the notes to Sandy to have her turn them into a keynote. I still, this morning, instead of saying, hey guys, I decided to give a different message. Maybe that one will be for another day because I did have the thought go through my head. I'm pressing forward something that God is doing in me and something I have a burden for him doing in us. I can't make that happen. All I can do is throw a net into the water and obey the word of the Lord. I can do it for me. I can't do it for your boat. I want to be a Christian as God intends a Christian to be. I know I fall short. And I'm not going to be measured by my intentions, by my desire. I'm going to be measured by my action. And I wish I was measured by my desire because it's there. I really do desire good things. I'm sure those virgins desired to have oil in their lamps, but they didn't. There are two virgins. There are sheep and goats, too. Two baths. One did, one didn't. Wheat and tares. One produced fruit, one just looked like it was going to. I do not want to be a tear. And I do not want to be a church of tares. I want to be a church that produces much fruit. Father, whatever this is in me, I pray that it would be in all of us, that you would increase it. It's a burden, it's an ache. It's an anguish. It's a scene of what you deserve and yet a sense of smallness next to it. A sense of sinfulness. Knowing that I am not what you are. me for I've seen the Lord high and lifted up <laughs> and I'm a man of unclean lips may I see the cross afresh may this body see the cross afresh as we see you may we recognize your willingness to condescend and come low to wash our feet Though we be other than you, so that you could make us like you, so that you could rescue us from this condition. Lord, we have excuses, but I don't want that to be a statement of where we move forward. May you touch every one of our excuses and not allow them to find breathing room in our soul, in our mind. May you do what only you can do in this body. 
Jesus. You are worthy of a church that is without spot and wrinkle. You are deserving of a body that obeys you, that doesn't look for an easier way to live, that doesn't follow the American pattern, but heeds your word and does precisely what you ask us, even if it leads to mockery, even if it leads to death. We need more of what you have to give, Lord. We need a clearer sighting of you. Lord, I pray for each one of this members of this body. And I pray that we would not leave here the way we've arrived. Whatever response you require, I pray that our answer before you even ask would be yes and amen. That we would agree with you, Lord. May this time of worship be real. I pray that the damper pedal would be lifted. That we would sing the praises of the ones, the one that we've seen, the one that we know, the one that we crave, and the one that we cherish. You are deserving, Lord. We love you. It's in the precious name we pray. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.